The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Along with me on today's panel to discuss other non-immigrant visa options other than the H and the L are my two esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kenya Sanders. Uh, and she and I were joking that just between the two of us, we have over half a century worth of knowledge. And Joanna Gavigan, who has been involved in the field of immigration for over 10 years. So there's a wealth of information that we hope to share with you during the teleconference to discuss different possible options for your employees, for individuals you work with uh, and can take advantage of. Um, so as many of you are aware, most of us are often thinking of the H-1B, the L-1, or the F-1 OPTs for our, whether it's technology business or insurance companies or whatever business we are running, engineering companies. Um, but there are a whole slew of other options that we sometimes refer to as the alphabet soup. Uh, but we will talk about those options that we think may be viable and workable for you all as employers to potentially use for your existing employees or future possible employees. As the saying goes, we will go a mile wide and an inch deep, so we're not get, going to get into every nitty-gritty detail, but we hope to get into enough detail so that you will get a flair and a flavor of what's out there. And of course, if you need our help with processing any of this, it would be an honor and a pleasure for us at the Muthi Law Firm to continue to help and guide you and your uh, employees to determine if any of the other options should be considered before throwing in the towel and sending the employee back to the home country. So with that, I'm going to invite Kenya Sanders. Kenya, can you just explain a little bit about whether these categories that are reserved, you know, are they per, based on country, or is it based on country of birth like this? Um, priority date issue? Is it more open-ended? So that will lay the framework before we jump into the actual different options. Sure. We are actually going to be talking to you about a variety of other non-immigrant um, visas that are available. And one subsection of the other uh, non-immigrant visas are the ones that are based on treaties between the either multilateral treaties or bilateral treaties. Um, and what is important or significant about these treaty-based visas are that it doesn't depend on whether you are born in the country, but it depends whether you are a citizen of that country. So you could be born in another country which does not have a treaty with the U.S. for these particular kinds of visas, but you have citizenship in one of those countries, then you are eligible for these visas. Um, Excellent. So Very good you, point. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. So if you are like you know you're an Indian national, you're born in India. However, you have citizenship of a country that has, a, for example, UK. You have UK citizenship, and the UK has a bilateral treaty with the US for one of these types of visas. Then or you are uh, you are a citizen of citizen of Canada um, and then Canada has a multilateral treaty with the US and there is a particular visa associated with that you are eligible to for one of those visas wonderful thank you Kenya thank you for laying the framework and that makes a lot of sense and so we know people for example who take up a citizenship for example of Grenada or different Caribbean countries which just by buying sometimes property worth a certain amount half a million dollars or whatever, you can become a citizen and then enter the U.S., whether it's on the E1, E2, or some of some such classification for your family members, for your key employees, so that they are not only, the only option isn't just H1L1, 
uh, F1 OPG and then having to send them out of the country. So excellent point. So with that, I'm going to invite you, Joanna, to talk a little bit about the option and discuss a little bit to, to, for the options in the two countries, which are the immediate neighbors of the United States, to our north, of course, Canada, and to our south, of course, Mexico. So I know it's the option under the North American, what used to be called NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement. But yes. now, of course, under the Trump administration, it's referred to as USMCA or US-Mexico and Canada Agreement. And so let's talk a little bit about the TN visa category. Joanna? Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, it initially began with NAFTA, but now it's been um, transformed to the USMCA, the US-Mexican-Canadian Agreement. And so as the, you would imagine, in order to qualify for a TN visa, which is the category we're discussing, you would need to either be a, a Canadian citizen or a Mexican citizen. Um, and the TN category is available for those individuals who are coming to work in the U.S. within a professional, a specific, a specific professional position. Um, the, there's a number of positions listed in the agreement. Uh, it's, it's a fairly long list. It has a variety of professions. Some of the most popular are, you know, accountants, doctors, registered nurses, pharmacists, all different kinds of scientists, uh, university professors, hotel managers, um, lawyers, and some of the more technology side of the end, you have the computer systems analysts or engineers, and that can include a software engineer. Um, so for the vast majority of these professions, in order to qualify for the TN visa, you must show, the applicant is required to show that they have a college degree within the related field of the profession that they're coming to work in. Um, experience alone or even a combination of education experience will generally not work. So it's a little different than the H-1B visa, which okay. I think there's one exception to that. Yes. Yes, the exception absolutely is for the management consultant, um, which, of course, both the CBP, the Customs and Border Protection, and sometimes the USCIS, if the person is extending the status within the United States without traveling abroad, is subject to much greater scrutiny and a higher chance of possible denial or being sent back from the Canadian border or the Mexican border. So what is a management consultant? It's generally um, based on somebody who can either qualify based on the education or degree or have at least five years of relevant ex management consultancy experience. And part of the reason that the immigration, uh, whether it's CBP or USCIS, they tend to closely scrutinize these applications is because, again, there's no degree requirement, so that's automatically a red flag in most cases. Of course, as with all CN positions, the position is required to be temporary. The person must continue to have a non-immigrant intent, unlike H1 and L1, which enjoy the dual intent doctrine. This, the, the TN has to show an, un, uh, an unabandoned foreign residence, so they have to show their home, life assets, etc., whether it's in Canada or Mexico. It generally cannot be used to fill an existing opening to replace someone um, or to fill a newly created permanent position. Um, so as, as we mentioned earlier, and we may have sort of briefly touched upon, most Canadians, because they are visa exempt under federal law, they can actually just enter from uh, the port of entry, the airport or the land port or the seaport, and uh, obtain the, from CBP the I-94 with the TN classification um, at the port of entry. And as I said, if, to, if they're already in the U.S. and don't need to travel abroad during the three-year tenure of the TN status, then they can file the extension of status of the TN with the USCIS. But for Mexicans, of course, the application has to be filed at the U.S. Embassy or a consulate. They have to obtain the visa as opposed to Canadians who are visa exempt. Uh, but in, for both Canadians and Mexicans, the TN itself, there is no requirement that a prior petition has to be approved ahead of time, which obviously can be very helpful with, because we know the USCIS often can take several months to approve almost any petition, including H-1B extensions or new H-1Bs or even simple B-1, B-2 changes of status or almost any other non-immigrant status within the U.S. So have, avoiding the USCIS filing process the first time they enter can save a lot of time 
Uh, generally, self-employment is not permitted in TN status. However, a person is allowed to be sponsored by the Canadian company in order to perform work for a U.S. company. And in that situation, the sponsored TN worker is allowed to be an owner of the Canadian company. So it's a little bit different than you would in the H-1B context or the L-1 context in that sense. As I mentioned earlier, the TN is typically granted in three-year increments, and it may keep on being extended indefinitely. There's no three-year or six-year or nine-year or 12-year limit, so you have some TNs that stay forever. So as long as the person continues as long as the person continues to otherwise qualify and is required for that job that is on the Schedule 2 of the old NAFTA agreement as a profession, that qualifies. The dependents of the TN are referred to as the TD or the trade dependent status, but they are not allowed to work based on TD status. They would need another status in order to perform work. So that's a broad overview of the TN. Uh, option. Next, let's jump to the what we call the treaty trader or treaty investor status, the Ivan E2. So I'm going to invite you, Kenya, to briefly go over what is required and how it works. Um, and then sure. Joanna can continue the discussion. Okay. So the E1, there was the E1 and E2. The E1 is a treaty trader, and the E2 is the treaty in investor categories. These allow select foreign nationals, which means that foreign nationals who belong, who are citizens of countries who have these bilateral treaties with the U.S., which allow for these, uh, for these visas. They can come here to carry on either substantial international trade that is mainly between the U.S. and the treaty country or to develop and direct an operation in the U.S. company where that individual had made a substantial investment. The, um, the even in two categories, um, they can also come here to work in a supervisory or executive or essential skills positions for a qualifying employer. Now we will you know, talk about a qualifying employer, which means uh, the companies also can be considered to be treaty nationals if they're owned by uh, individuals of the treaty company. So if there's a company in Australia that is owned by citizens of Australia and they establish a company here owned by citizens of Australia, the employees of those companies can come here as long as they are citizens of, of the respective country, of, of that country uh, to, to work. So they can come as executives or as essential skills positions or supervisory positions. Now, these classifications, of course, work well for large established companies like how I described just now, but it can also work for entrepreneurs. You know, if you... Um, you know, if you own a company overseas and you engage in trade and you want to set up a company here in the U.S. and engage in trade between the U.S. and uh, the treaty company, a treaty country, you know, where you have your, your company, so that could work. Or an individual wants to, of a treaty country, wants to invest and operate and establish and develop a business here in the U.S., they can do that as well. Um, now, as we said, you know, these visas, unfortunately, are not available to all foreign nationals. They have to be citizens of specific treaty uh, mm -hmm. countries which have treaties between the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, so they are the ones you know, who can apply for those visas. However, as, you know, we, as, as I was, you know, we were discussing at the beginning, that if you are, you know, if you are a citizen of India, uh, there are certain countries who would give you a fast track to citizenship to their countries. These countries that have uh, eligibility for E1 and E2 treaty visas with the U.S., so you can fast track your citizenship in that country, and then, um, you know, make yourself, you know, avail of these uh, these visas. Excellent now, point. So, Kenya, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So to make, you know, it's really, like you said, stressing the point that 
if China or India don't have either one of those major countries with very heavy populations, don't have those qualifying treaties, but then you have your option to become a dual citizen while maintaining maybe your citizenship with India to become a citizen of another country, whether it's England or Singapore or Australia. And then, but there are also less obvious countries that I think sometimes we are always amazed that India and China are left out, but then you have countries like maybe Iran or Pakistan and even Taiwan uh, and such countries that have either E1 or E2 category options, but some of them only have one, some have other, which is interesting. And people are always like, why not? Why not? Well, that means that whoever in your country, your trade representatives need to negotiate with U.S. trade representatives to open up these options. And in fact, at the Muti Law Firm, I remember what we had a small uh, group that was trying to strategically work with the U.S.-India Business Council to see how we could convince the Indian federal government, the central government in India, to work with the U.S. federal government to open up the E1-E2 treaty trader treaty investor options for India. And so that's been in the works, and we've been trying very hard for years as part of our lobbying efforts to help companies and employers from the Murthy Law Firm in presenting the case. But obviously, at the end of the day, we are not at the highest levels of political power, and for whatever reason, people are hesitating. And with everything going on right now in the world with COVID-19, of course, you know, I guess that's not, that's probably well in the back burner at the current stage. Um, so maybe I'll invite Joanna to talk a little bit about, to explain the E1, E2 category and the definitions of briefly of what is a substantial trade and how it works. Sure. sure. So the E1 category is, is reserved specifically for treaty traders. Um, to qualify, the applicant must engage in what is referred to as substantial trade between the treaty country and the U.S. Like many definitions in immigration, substantial trade is not clearly defined, um, which is, can work to individuals' benefits because you can you know, meet this requirement in a number of different ways. Um, there, the guidelines that have been given indicate that the trade must be an amount of trade sufficient to ensure a continuous flow of international trade between the U.S. and the treaty country. Um, it should not just be based on a single transaction. There should be an ongoing continuous flow of trade between the countries. The volume of exchange is the primary focus. Um, monetary value is also important. And actually, in, for instance, the guidelines that are given to Department of State um, adjudicators at the consulate indicate that greater weight should be accorded to cases that involve more numerous transactions of a larger value than ones that would not have such great value. Um, the, the, amount of trade that the business is conducting, more than half of that total amount of trade should be conducted between the U.S. and treaty country. It's not like you can have a business that's trading more frequently with other countries and just doing a little bit of trade with the U.S. It must be more than half the total trade that that company is, is, is participating in. And then as Kanya mentioned initially, the person who's applying for the E1 can either be coming to the U.S. to carry on that substantial trade between the U.S. and the treaty country, or it could be a person coming at, who is designated as a key employee of that company or an executive supervisor or an employee with essential skills. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the individual, you know, an individual running the company. Um, again, as Kanye mentioned, that, that the employee does need to be a, a citizen of the treaty country. Yeah. And then, yeah, especially, uh -huh. go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say and it's the it's same as, as well as the E2 category, that the investors and who they're coming, the employees do need to be a citizen of that country. Yes, same exact uh, scenario. So the E1 is the treaty trader and the E2 is the treaty investor. And even though most people, especially if they're on the call and they're not familiar with this, so think of a lot of the subway shops, the ExxonMobil gas stations, the different gas stations, the st subway stores, the, the, the different, a lot of the Dunkin' Donuts stores, many of them are actually owned in the E1, E2 treaty trader, those are the smaller. So when they talk about the substantially large volume or large bad dollar transactions, they are not in the hundreds of millions of dollars, obviously, or even millions, or even they're, they're not even in often even 100,000. So if it's a smaller dollar amount, then you would need to show that you're doing majority of the investment or substantiality for the issue. So the E2, as I said, is reserved for treaty investors. And so you need to make a substantial investment in a U.S. business. 
So since the term substantial is not defined in the statute or even in the regulations, we find that whether it's the U.S. consular officer abroad at the U.S. consulate or USCIS, when you're filing an extension of status within the United States, what do they look at? They look at one, that it must be substantial in a proportional sense. So they talk about the doctrine of substantiality and the doctrine of proportionality. That is, it's substantial in relation to the total cost. So if it's 100,000 business, you can't have 10 people investing 10,000 each. Hopefully you're, invest, you're putting in at least 60 or 70 or for a thousand of that 100,000 initial investment to buy that Dunkin' Donut or the subway stop or whatever if you're trying to do this for uh, a business. Also, second, you need for substantiality it is sufficient to ensure the treaty investor's financial commitment to the successful operation of the enterprise. And three, that, the, that it should be substantial in the sense it should be of a magnitude to support the likelihood that the treaty investor will successfully develop and then direct the enterprise. So the person that's, who's applying for this E2 treaty, tra uh, treaty investor category can be either the actual investor itself who's coming to develop and direct the operations, as we just said, or similar to what Kenya and uh, Joanna just discussed with the E1, it can be either an executive, a supervisor, an essential skills employee. So that's generally for larger companies where you have such a hierarchy and gradation of employees. So for both the E1 and the E2, the entity that is sponsoring the E1 or the E2 worker must be at least 50% owned by nationals of the treaty country, and the foreign national applicant must be a citizen of that same treaty country. Sometimes what happens when we are processing cases at the multi-law firm, the people who somebody might get married to a U.S. citizen and then apply and then not even like tell us, or it might come out casually, like, oh, I got my U.S. passport. Guess what? Now you're no longer eligible for the E1, E2. You now need to file based on your, uh, your U.S. citizen. Obviously, you don't need to, need to. But if you're, you know, having where you become a citizen, sometimes of another country that is no longer a member of the, the treaty country that enjoys these benefits, you could similarly lose the opportunity to apply and get that benefit. So E1 and E2s are generally typically issued for up to five years, and the foreign national is generally admitted for two years at a time. So even you get a five, but when you enter the country, you get up to two years at a time. And there's, no, again, similar to the TN, there is no maximum number of times that the E1 and E2 visa or the status could potentially get, keep getting extended. And again, it is a strictly non-immigrant visa status. And the spouse and the children of the E1 or E2 enjoy a huge benefit because as E1 or E2 dependents, they're eligible to apply for the employment authorization document and can legally work in the United States without any restrictions, unlike the TN or the H1B, where the H4 generally cannot get the EAD unless the I-140 petition is approved um, and apply and wait for it similar to these cases. So with that, so that's a nice big overview of E1, E2 treaty trader, treaty investor. We tried to give you some examples of smaller and bigger and larger companies that one can invest in. Next, let's jump to the E3, which is the option available for citizens of Australia. So, Kenya, can I invite you to go ahead and discuss the E3 option? Sure. So, the E3 uh, visas, as Sheila said, are available to citizens of Australia. So, these visas are coming out for Australian citizens, and they're coming here to perform services in a specialty occupation. Now, that would ring a bell with you because a specialty occupation is what qualifies for an H-1B as well. So the E-3 is similar to the H-1B, except that it's only for Australians. And secondly, there are some processing differences. Um, so as a specialty occupation, um, you know, it does require the theoretical and practical application of a specialized knowledge and attainment of a bachelor's degree, so which means that it has to be a position that would require at least a bachelor's degree level of training in a specific field in order to perform that position. Um, so, so you know, so it's similar to the H-1B, and the process is also similar to the H-1B with with some slight uh, differences. First of all, it's the um, 
the Australian who is applying for the E3 is in Australia or is outside of the U.S., the employer has to only file an LCA. They don't have to file a petition. Once the LCA is approved, then, you know, with the offer of employment and documentation about the individual's qualification, that individual then applies for the E3 visa at the consulate overseas, either in Australia or any other country. But however, if they're within the United States and they're filing for an extension of status or a change of status, then they would file the petition along with the LCA in order to extend or change that individual's status. Um, now, again, for the qualifications, as we, you know, as, as I said, that you need to have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, a U.S. bachelor's degree. So it doesn't have to be a straight bachelor's degree. It can be a combination of education and experience that equals a U.S. bachelor's degree, and that would qualify. Now, there is an annual cap on these visas as well, which is about 10,500. But strangely enough, that cap has never been met, unlike the H-1B. So there aren't you know, many um, Australians falling over each other to apply for these E3s and come here, um, strangely enough. That would be nice so... if they could transfer those annual <laughs> numbers to the H-1B, which Lord knows could keep using, especially with Chinggising. Chile and Singapore using up those H-1B1s, which I know we are not touching right. on, because, again, that, those 6,500 are barely ever used. So it would be, right. those are put back into the quota or cap, but these 10,500 are not we put back into the unused quota because it's outside of the H-1B limitation. That's correct. And the dependents are granted what's called E3D status and spouses again, can apply for work authorization, unlike H-4s, as Sheila said, where H-4 to depend on the H-1B, having an I-140 approved, whereas uh, E-3 dependents can apply for work authorization. Now, the E-3s also, they are approved for two years at a time, and again, renewed indefinitely. There's a six-year cap. There's no requirement of approved I-140 to extend it beyond a particular time period. So they can continue to extend it um, ad nauseum, um, so without any limit. Wonderful. Thank you, Kenya. Okay, You're so welcome. let's uh, next touch upon the P-Visa classification for artists, athletes, and entertainers. And uh, this is quite an interesting category because I know at the Musi Law Firm we've done some really interesting cases for Katakali dancers, Arakatic dancers, reggae musicians, major bands. No, nationally, internationally renowned band. So it's a fascinating category. So, Joanna, I'm going to invite you to talk a little bit about how it works and the process itself. Again, briefly touch upon the, the process. Um, sure. And, and then we'll hopefully have time to, um, to, 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 to wrap it up. Great. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, uh, the P visa, it's a fun visa. It's for artists, athletes, and entertainers. Um, not that the other classifications aren't fun, but the, there's a P1, there's a P2, and there's a P3. Uh, the P1 classification, it's reserved for internationally recognized athletes or entertainers coming to the U.S. Uh, as individually or as a member of a group or team. Um, for purposes of athletes, they should be coming to perform a specific athletic event. The classification requires that the applicant be, have international recognition. It doesn't need to be a professional league. Amateur leagues are fine as long as they can meet the qualification of having international recognition within their sport. Um, and again, P1 can also be used for entertainers who are coming to the U.S. to provide essential part of a performance as part of an entertainment group, which they've been affiliated with for at least one year, um, and who is also recognized internationally as outstanding. There's no individual recognition that is required. Um, so that's, that's the P1 classification. And the P2 classification is also for artists and entertainers, but this one's a little more specific. It's for in, art, artists and entertainers who are coming to the U.S., again, either individually or as a group, to perform in an exchange program between one or more U.S. and foreign counterpart organizations. So it's rarely used because it needs to be, you know, has that exchange aspect between the U.S. organization and the foreign organization, and they need to be coming to perform for the U.S. organization. It's, it's available, but it is more limited because of that nuance to it. 
Um, and again, P3s are also available for artists and entertainers um, who are culturally unique, and that is key. It can be, um, they can be coming as an individual or a group, and they can be coming to perform, or they can be coming to, to teach. We can get into that. There's a number of things they can be doing. But the key is that they must be culturally unique artists and entertainers. And fortunately, culturally unique was defined. Um, it's defined as a style of artistic expression, methodology, or medium, which is unique to a particular country, nation, society, class, ethnicity, religion, tribe, or other group of persons. Um, so that's when I think we've had some very interesting clients in the past coming in that P3 classification. They can be coming for commercial or non-commercial purposes. Um, oftentimes, the, the company petitioning is the actual employer of the artist or entertainer, um, but it can also be the sponsoring organization that they're coming to work with. The, the beneficiary, who's the, you know, the, the, the entertainer, is either the employee or the entertainer who's going to be entertaining at the sponsoring organization. Um, if it's a performance group, all the entertainers within the group can be listed as individual beneficiaries on the same I-129. It can be listed on the I-129 attachment. And importantly, they don't need to be coming to perform um, you know, or entertain. They can also be coming here to, to be teachers or coaches when they're trying to, to give their unique skill to others in the, in the U.S. They can be teaching them or they can be coaching them. So it's not required that they're only coming to perform. So it, it can be used in a number of different ways. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. And so the companion classification for the P3, the P3S, is for the essential support personnel that come along. So, for example, if you have a dance troupe, then the people who do some of the specialized lighting are the musicians, the tabla players, and certain specific musical instruments that are part of that famous dance troupe might are then called the essential support personnel, and they enter on the P3S uh, status or visa classification when they apply at the U.S. consulate. And again, the employer itself can just be a uh, sponsoring entity and organization that can, as we said, be commercial or non-commercial fashion and doesn't need to be in the field of endeavor. Um, and we've talked about this, that generally for the P3s, that it's limited either to the specific, if there's a world international competition, you come in for that competition uh, if it's, uh, or an event or a particular performance. Some of these can be an entire season of performances. We've seen people come for three months, six months, even up to almost a year. Um, and a group of related activities are also considered to be part of the event if there are series of concerts across the country or across this whole reach, you know, North America, for example. Uh, with respect to the time period that the, the P1, P2, and P3 are allowed to enter, the P1 for the individual athletes, believe it or not, it can be five years, which is why it explains why some of them play on some of these professional majors. You have so many international superstars coming, whether it's from Africa or different parts of Asia. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Million Dollar Arm. I'm guessing if they had to come in without being sponsored initially, they might have come in on probably the P1 kind of status. Um, uh, the P1 for teams or groups uh, is also up to five years. The P2 uh, and P3 is in order to complete the event or the series of events, but generally never more than one year. Uh, the extensions for the P1 athletes, athletes are actually done in five-year increments, uh, but it is at a maximum of 10 years. Uh, and the extension for all the others the P3s and the P2s, it's to complete the event again, in, but only in one-year increments. So the I-94 card, similar to what's often given with the H1B, there's a grace period 10 days before the start of the event, so you can come in, set up, get comfortable, get over your jet lag in the beginning, and 10 days after to pack your stuff and maybe do some sightseeing and go back. So not a lot of time there, uh, grace period. There are also consultation letters that are sometimes required uh, from organizations which right now under the current administration, they have made a bigger deal of it saying you need to get those because sometimes if there is no uh, specific group, uh, people have uh, argued that they shouldn't be required to provide those consultation letters, but the, the, those letters basically summarize whether the foreign national skills are in fact culturally unique, whether the events are cultural, and whether the events are appropriate for the P3 classification. For the P1, the uh, person, the beneficiary, the employees, or the, the alien, the foreign national 
or the group's ability and achievements in the field of endeavor should be internationally recognized and consider whether it's being performed or appropriate for the requested classification. That's what's mentioned in the consultation letters that are provided. Um, so again, it's not going to apply to majority of your team or employees, but if some of you through your local organizations want to bring people into the country, that's an option that you can do for, for musicians, athletes, etc., to come in. Next, let's go to the OVAS classification for individuals of extraordinary ability or achievement. I'm going to invite Kenya to get started. Okay. Thank you, Sheila. So the O1 category, there are two distinct categories, which is the O1A and the O1B. Now, the O1A and it's also a non-immigrant category, and it's for individuals who are considered to have extraordinary ability in the sciences, education, business, or athletics. And O1B is for individuals um, who have extraordinary ability in the arts or have uh, extraordinary achievement in motion picture or television industry. Now, the extraordinary ability in the field of sciences, education, business, or athletics means it's a level of expertise that indicates that the person is among a small group of individuals who has written to the top of the field um, of their endeavor, so you know whichever the, their field is. Now, um, just to say for education, I mean, it doesn't have to be academics. It can be, um, you know, music education. Um, I mean, I have done O1 for yoga teachers who are considered, you know, uh, like well-renowned and, you know, um, internationally known. Now, the extraordinary ability in the field of arts means distinction, and distinction is defined as a high level of achievement in the field of the arts evidenced by a degree of skill and recognition substantially above that ordinarily encountered to the extent that a person can be described as being prominent in their field, is renowned, leading, or well-known in, in their field, the artistic field. Now, O2 is for individuals who will be accompanying the O1 who provide assistance that is an integral part of the O1A's specific event or performance. That means they are essential, just like what um, Sheila was describing for the P3, uh, you know, where you're talking about the uh, P3S. Um, you know, they have to be integrated. So when, you know, when you have somebody coming as an athlete, okay, on O1, um, O1, A or B, their coach or their trainer, their medical, um, uh, you know, people, the medical personnel who take care of, you know, those individuals are integral to the performance of that individual, then they will be eligible for the O2. Now, Another thing to say is that um, the O2 is only um, eligible for the athlete or the performance of the you know O1B category. You know you can't you know have uh, somebody who is got O1A in a business or education to bring somebody on O2 to say hey this person is integral. Um, you know, to my work. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So it has to be, you know, a, a performance, you know, based um, uh, visa that the O2 will qualify for. Now, um, and again, the O1 also has to be accompanied by a written advisory opinion or a consultation from a peer group or labor organization. Now, if the particular field does not have a peer group or a labor organization, then the, you know, you have to state that and then USCIS will have to make a decision based on the totality of the evidence that is being presented. Now, Thank you, Kenya. Uh, yeah. I, I uh, know that we tried to do these between 30 to 45 minutes and I didn't realize we're <laughs> over 30 minutes at this point. So we'll try to 
we'll try to wrap this up and then go because the J1 is pretty important. So let's do this and then try to talk briefly about the J1 and the R1 before wrapping it up. We'll, we, we promise you we'll try to get you out within the 45 minutes. So um, we're, we're running a little bit late because there's so many different options that we had to discuss. And I know we're getting a little bit in the weeds, but it was to really give you options to think of for key people or employees or whatever you decide as employers to want to do uh, for key people, especially O1 is for those who reach the highest levels of endeavor. So Kenya, go ahead, wrap it up, and then we'll have Joanna talk about the J1. Sure. I just want to just mention um, that the O1 classification may be, may be based on a single or multiple offers of employment. It can also be an agent, you know, who is placing the person in, in different uh, venues. Uh, the initial petition can be valid for up to three years, and then you can do extensions of one on one-year increments for unlimited duration. Again, there is no cap on how many years you can be on O1. Wonderful. Thank you, Kenya. So, Joanna, You're I know welcome. this is a really hot and popular topic, mainly because it was set up back in 1961, almost 60 years ago under the Fulbright Case Act, the Mutual Exchange and Cultural Exchange Act, and basically um, it's available, I guess, for all fun different categories, which you'll touch upon, and I know you know, hotels use it, industry uses it, entertainment companies use it, universities use it, businesses can use it. So I'm sure this will interest and excite our employers on the call. Yes, yeah, so uh, briefly, because I know we are, we are running against the clock. Um, the J-1 pro visa is generally available. The, the concept is an exchange category. So it is highly used by professionals like doctors who are getting training in the U.S. Um, and uh, other industries. There are a number of parties involved. There's the Department of State who will issue the visa. There's the Exchange Visitor Program sponsor. Um, there are, needs to be a specific approved sponsor for the J-1 applicant, and the list of those are available from the Department of State on their website. And then you have the other individuals like the responsible officers or the alternative responsible officer who are they're the ones appointed by the Exchange Visitor Program to perform the the duties, you know, oversee everything, make sure it's all the exchange program training and, and education is going well. Um, and then, of course, you have ICE and SCVP, who are, it's similar to F1, they're in charge of the CVIS program and just making sure that the individuals are maintaining their status and still actively engaged in the program. The categories for that can apply for a J-1 can include a research scholar. A lot of universities will use the J-1 for that reason similar to a physician, which can be employed in J-1. Uh, it can be a student who's getting cultural training or, you know, different types of training. Um, a trainee or an intern, teachers, uh, camp counselors, government visitors, summer work travel. So a lot of hotels will use that in the summer where they can come and work during the summer and go back to continue their education in their, in their home country. Um, and then au pairs obviously can come and can, you know, watch over over children within the J-1 program. So I think the most important for purposes of our, our, our clients could be the trainee or intern program because a lot of businesses use this to get temporary training to J-1 um, non-immigrant visa holders. So as long as a U.S. company has a bona fide training program or an internship program, which is aimed at providing professional, professional and cultural training, it can host the foreign national training. Um, and they can, there's, there's a little distinction between a J-1 trainee and a J-1 intern. Um, they kind of, for purposes of our understanding, seem to overlap, but there are distinctions. Um, the fields of training can include information, media, and technology, management, business, commerce, finance, science, engineering, architecture. As you can see, it goes, you know, a wide range of, of types of industries can use this, this visa. Um, but it's important that they have a bona fide training program in place. The, the training program must be approved ahead of time. Um, the host company will have to apply with the Department of State. It will generate a form DS-2019, which is used by the individual then to go apply for the J-1 visa. So the training program needs to be in place and needs to be vetted by the Department of State first. Um, that's going to be outlined on form DS-7002. And that's what the Department of State will evaluate to make sure it meets the eligibility requirements for the training program. 
So a J1 trainee is a little different because the J1 trainee should already have a degree or a certificate abroad or at least one year of experience within the field related to the proposed training. They can, a J1 trainee can be, stay in the U.S. for up to 18 months. And importantly, what's interesting, because the focus of the J1 is about the exchange program, there are age limitations to the J1 trainee and J1 intern. For a J1 trainee, because they, can have, they should have already obtained their certificate or degree or at least a year of experience in the field, they must be at least 20 they, they can only be up to 20 years old, so 20 years to 35. They can't be younger than 20 and applying for the J1 trainee. The counterpart to that, the J1 intern, J1 intern is more for individuals who are currently pursuing education abroad and are coming to work in the U.S. for the, comp the U.S. company to get training in their field. So they must show that they're currently enrolled in a degree or certificate program or that they've completed their program within the last 12 months. It can't be more than 12 months since they've completed their program. Um, the age requirement for a, a J1 intern is then they can be 18 to 35. They cannot be younger than 18. So the intern can come and participate in training for up to 12 months, um, and then they can continue with to return to their home country, and they can continue to do, do school. And as long as they're still in school and still in their program, they can participate in a new internship program as long as it continues to meet the requirements and doesn't overlap the training they already received. So it's, it's a good alternative. There are some limitations to the amount of hands-on work they can do. It should be incidental to their training, but it can help help companies, especially you know, if they're looking to hire individuals in the future, they'd like to train them. Wonderful. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, last, we're going to try to touch upon, we're not going to discuss a lot of the H1B1. As I said, we already talked about that, that there are other categories, but we'll try to uh, and consider in the middle of a health crisis, a global pandemic, ending with the R1 religious workers seems so timely and apt. So I'm going to invite maybe Kenya to just start, talk very briefly in a minute or two about the ministers and what involved, but also remember that in today's sort of healthcare industry, you know, with the health crisis and the shortage of people, nurses and nurse practitioners, it's possible that the nurse could come in and work as a nurse for a religious organization because it's the vocation and not the actual what work you're doing that's potentially possible. So even though when we describe some of these categories, it's possible to think outside the box and see how much you can, as an employer, stretch this work with your lawyer or legal team to continue to expand each of these options. So let's talk very briefly, maybe in a minute, each about the R1 religious workers. So Kenya and uh, Joanna, I'll invite you to speak that so that we can wrap it up and be done in the next two minutes. Sure. So the R1 visa can be used for uh, religious ministers or religious workers or of a religious vocation. For minister, the person must be authorized and trained to conduct religious worship and perform other duties usually performed by clergy of that religion. For a religious worker, the person must be a member of the religion for at least the past two years and must be coming to perform a religious job in either a professional or non-professional capacity. Now, the worker must primarily be related um, must be doing a traditional religious function. R1 cannot be used for a person to primarily perform like administrative or support function, such as clerical employees or fundraisers. So it has to be a traditional religious function. Performing work in support of the religious organization is not the same thing as being a religious worker. For instance, a person providing tech support for a church's online presence generally would not be considered a religious worker. And but this is to be distinguished from where they're actually doing it as part of the job, part of the vocation that you described, right? Right, right. Okay. Now, the vocation that we talked about is, you know, is it a nun who, you know, is also providing, um, you, know, nurse, uh, you know, nurse kind of work, you know, that will be a religious vocation. Okay, so, um, right, and so, you know, so that is what a religious vocation will be. They can work as providing health care services. They are sisters as well as nuns. I mean, and, well, and as well as nurses, <laughs> right. Perfect. Okay. Thank and you. So, Joanna? Yeah, it's important that the sponsor must be a nonprofit religious organization in the U.S., 
Um, if you're, the first R1 can be particularly tricky because generally USAS likes to conduct a site visit prior to the approval of the initial R1. So that can prolong this pending time period with USCIS because they generally will want to conclude that site visit before they approve it. For that before reason, they you know, would do it, but I think this is part of the new administration where there yeah. is even more strict requirements in the last year or two. Yeah, so, and so premium processing won't be available if the site visit hasn't, been, uh, hasn't already occurred. Um, R1s can be valid for up to five years. Um, it's similar to the H1. You can get a new five years as long as you've resided outside the U.S. for one year. And then, again, R1 dependents are going to be coming to the U.S. in R2 status, and unfortunately there's no employment authorization available to the R2 dependents. Thank you. Thank you very much. So as you can see from this summary, we've literally touched upon what we think are some of the unique, and some of you may think, oh my God, you know, this was a lesson that I learned on immigration law that I really didn't want to invest in the middle of a pandemic crisis. But we're just asking you to keep your options open, discuss with potential other possibilities if it may apply to your particular candidate or situation, whether it's within your company setting up a trainee or an internship program where you could bring some of your, and by the way, there's no restrictions that if the person is a family member that you cannot bring them to experience this culture because that's what the whole thing about the cultural exchange program, for example, uh, works or some persons who are highly accomplished could try to come under the P1, uh, the O1 classification. And those, for example, culturally unique dance, if you want to, uh, this stressful time, deal with certain other benefits, which I know now travel is shut in many parts of the world, but when the world opens up, all of these other options, like we're talking about the culturally unique programs, et cetera, can potentially work. Uh, so being mindful of the time, I do want to say thank you for participating in today's teleconference on behalf of Kenya Sanders, uh, Joanna Gavigan, and myself, Sheila Musi. We thank you for participating today, and we hope that you got a flavor of the different options available. Stay safe, stay healthy, and together we will hopefully all come out stronger and better after all of this pandemic when the world opens up. Take care and thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.